Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're recording shows in a live venue here in Lexington, Kentucky. We've got folks who are involved with a variety of health programs, a variety of innovative strategies that are being discussed here. And I've got another person who is a leader in this field sitting across from me in our real live booth. We're in an exhibit area, so if you hear some background noise, you'll understand why. But Paul Lehman, he is the coordinator for a group called Collegiate Advocates for Better Living. Paul, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Paul, you and I had the opportunity of doing a a radio show not all that long ago, so some of my listening folks may say, I I recognize that name, I've heard of that organization, but for others who may be hearing your name and about uh, what's sometimes simply referred to as CABL, C-A-B-L, Collegiate Advocates for Better Living, tell us a little bit about that organization that you help coordinate. So that organization was started on a, a campus by students in Texas. Southwestern Adventist University, to be precise, because they felt there was a need for students to know more about health. It has been going since 1972, and at least some of the campuses now have been involved with that for a long, for since that time. We are now reaching out to the public campuses, and that is one of our goals to reach out to public campuses and also to elementary and academy age students so that they can also get looped into this. Okay, this is exciting to me as a physician because one of the the most distressing things that we deal with in in medicine is we see people, I'll have folks come into my office for the first time, maybe it's a person with diabetes, they've already had an amputation, they've lost their vision, and we start working with them and we see that their disease process is reversible with lifestyle. Their blood sugars are normal, and you just think, well, if they'd known this sooner, we could have prevented these problems. So you're at the grassroots level. You're working with students, uh, college-age students, and pushing that back into academy high school and and grade school. This is exciting. Tell us why you're here. You're making some kind of a, a seminar presentation. Is that right? There's a seminar here to teach individuals who are working with university-age students in their particular communities. It might be church community. It might be a school community. And to teach them how to actually engage these young people. And young people like action. They, mm-hmm. they don't only like to just hear another lecture. So they like to see the action. So the workshop is definitely geared to have an action, an activity with experiential learning. So they'll be given a principle and then there will be an activity. And so to just push that envelope a little bit farther to explain this, we have now done a number of mental health presentations uh, across North America. And we found that university-age students, uh, the things that we were testing, and this is no scientific test because they're very 
simple but they are high specificity tests in other words they are accurate tests that anybody can use to then direct a person to a professional so the the ones we were doing were anxiety mm-hmm. depression stress and the last one we did was burnout okay and in all of those we're finding that university age students these are high stress points or high indicators of of probable health problems coming their way and our goal is to try to alleviate that and learn how they can engage those young people to turn that clock back this is great so you're on the front lines making an impact as far as mental health issues that that may be emerging you're you're looking at these risk factors these predictors when you offer these standardized tests Bring us into your workshop, if you will. I know it's coming up in a couple days here, so I haven't had the ability to sit in on it. Um, I'm actually, I think I'm making a presentation and a workshop at the same time, so you and I won't uh, get a chance to hear each other speak. But, Paul, give us an illustration. We're talking about improving mental health, and you say it's hands-on. Tell me about an exercise that you're going to be doing in a couple days. Sure. Um, one of the things that when you, any time that you're working with a team or training with teams or leadership, uh, one of the core elements is that you have to build trust. Mm-hmm. Because if I do not, you as a physician, if the, if the patient does not trust you, uh, they're going to say, well, I don't know if I want to do this or not. Right. And so we're trying to achieve a trust level with these collegiates and any students or anybody who is interested and if we can engage them in some kind of a trust activity, then we start to build the team. And to build that trust, we go through a series of about eight steps. So, for instance, the one that we did on mental health, one of the things that uh, when you're working with a person who is, say, for instance, anxious mm-hmm. or depressed, people sometimes don't know how to listen. Mm. So we do one of the exercises we do with that is we use a blindfold and a mousetrap. Okay. Now, at that point, you better listen <laughs> to the instructions that you're getting. And so when this person is pouring their soul out to you about what's going on, you're thinking, okay, how can I get this person the help that they need? So that experiential activity or a trust activity that we do is we take climbing webbing and we make a circle and everybody hangs on to that and leans back. And as soon as, say, there's eight people in there and one person relaxes, the other seven have to collect that Mm. differential. And so you start to realize that your trust factor has to be within that team that you're working with. And you start to visualize that and say, hey, I learned something here as to how I can help somebody else. Now, I think most of us, we got the netting and people pulling on that. We can envision that. I can at least. But when you mention a blindfold and a mousetrap, are you talking about a mousetrap that's set? And, and, and how does this exercise work? Sure, the mousetrap is set. So in that instance, we assign them each a, a special task. So the person who is the counselor in this case, and, and there, with any scenario, there's limitations, of course. But the counselor or the person who is listening or the friend has the blindfold on. Okay. And so he is going to ask, questions that matter okay he's not going to ask some 
immaterial question. He's going to ask a question that matters. Where am I going to put this hand? And he's going to listen very carefully mm. to the person who is telling them to unset that mousetrap. Oh, you mean so the mousetrap is set and blindfolded, they have to unset the mousetrap? Yes, without dropping their shoe on it, without picking it up and throwing it down, they have to unset that safely. And this goes into everything from suicide to whatever, but it has to do with, it does with mental health, it does with communication, it does with the listening skills. We try to keep everybody safe, but I, I've been slammed with a mousetrap once for toys. Okay, okay. Well, so we're getting the picture here. So these practical, real-life scenarios that you're trying to teach people certain values like trust. Trust, I'm glad you mentioned this, Paul. It's a fascinating topic to me. There is, uh, in medical circles, and whether this is something that you deal with or not, there's this trust hormone called oxytocin. And uh, it's fascinating to me because if someone has a higher oxytocin level, they tend to be more trusting, but trusting relationships actually foster this hormone. So as I'm listening to, you, to what you're describing, as you're increasing trust, you're actually having neurochemical benefits in the participants. Is this part of the strategy? I mean, do you, do you have you all this uh, neurophysiology worked out? We don't get into it that deep, but clearly that is what happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly at that age, they're thinking, well, just give me give me the problem, give me the results. Uh, but I don't generally give the results. I give the problem, make sure they're safe, they're safe physically, morally, ethically, spiritually. Now you guys figure out the problem and how you're going to solve this as an individual or a team. And once that happens, the trust starts to build within that group and they start to communicate with each other dramatically and very positively. And they be, these relationships are, now I can depend on somebody that's with me. So I think we've got the picture. You're doing this workshop. You're training people to work together collaboratively. Who is your target audience for this training? And even beyond that, so first you're going to help me with that to understand the target audience, but I just want you to know where we're going. We want to help our radio listeners to say, how could some of this help them? How could some of these principles help our average listeners? So first of all, who do you hope to come to the seminar that you're offering? Hopefully the people that come to this seminar are people in the community who are connecting or hoping to connect with the university age students. Now, I am also very eager because we've done this more with university age students. But whenever we do this with university age students and the older population are watching, they always want to get involved. Mm. And so that is my goal for the university age students. But it's to engage those students from the leaders who would like to help them. Okay, so basically I hear a lot of community building. I'm hearing about target audiences as students, but I also hear about broader community involvement. Tell us a little bit about your background, Paul, because you have a deep history in the educational system. Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, my background is teaching physical education, which uh, was fantastic. It was mainly first at the high school, then at the university level. I'm a fairly competitive person, but I'm not a rivalistic person. I love the competition because I like that fun. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I found mostly with physical education 
that I did not get until I started out their education was I was competing more often against the person. Whereas once I moved this to the outdoors, to the mountaineering, to the leadership, to the canoeing, to the kayaking, it was now as a team working against the environment or against nature. And once you put people out in nature, they all respond in a different aspect, but it's rarely that it's negative. Hmm. And so now you're competing not against an indoor environment that's controlled, you're competing against an environment and you can do this solo, you can, many people do this solo, but once they start to work at it as a team, two people in a canoe, a climber and a belayer, mm-hmm. a mountaineer with another belayer on top or getting to the top of the peak, they have to start to depend on each other, even if at the beginning they don't like each other. Hmm. And I've had that happen. Okay. By the time they're done, they have to agree that if they're going to live, they have to do this together. Wow. Wow. I love this picture of outdoor education. Of course, my indigenous listeners, I can see they're saying, well, yeah, this is our cultural heritage. And we're talking about real life situations as opposed to here's the red team and here's the blue team, right? And only one team wins. In outdoor education, it sounds like the goal is for everyone to win. Everyone should win and grow. Okay, and grow. So how does this work practically? So let's talk about a... uh, Maybe it's an inner city school. It may be a native school. It could be a public school. These uh, young people in this environment, they don't have a lot of contact, let's say, with nature, so to speak. They're in a big urban area. How would you bring something like these outdoor education concepts to a place like the inner city? Well, there's a couple things that we do to kind of attract them, what we try to do. Generally, young people are very attracted to cables and ropes. Okay. They like those between trees. That's a challenge for them. Uh Uh, The other thing that they get attracted to is there's a challenge of them not only against that rope, but it could be perhaps against, can I get across this particular tightrope and if you do, I'm going to buy you a free pizza. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm getting the game plan. We have to step away just briefly. Uh, I'm talking with Paul Lehman. He is the coordinator for a group called Collegiate Advocates for Better Living. We're going to hear more about practical lessons that you can take, bring home, and use even yourself in our next segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. 
furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA service center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Sitting across from me is Paul Lehman. We're in a real venue. It's not just virtual as many of our interviews are. We're sitting in an exhibit area in Lexington, Kentucky. Paul has been telling me about his role as coordinator of Collegiate Advocates for Better Living. And Paul, as we've been speaking here both on air and off air, one of the things that is connecting in my mind is something interesting that we found. I'm speaking about me and uh, Dr. Greg Steinke and Trudy Lee. Uh, my co-authors, when we were writing a book on blood pressure. And we were looking at some of these things that you're talking about, social connectedness, people working together. We were also looking at the spiritual dimension, and we were separating that from a specific sectarian emphasis. In other words, we were saying we all have a spiritual dimension, and although I may be a Christian, I can work with people who have different spiritual orientation. We were saying, what are some of these spiritual values that seem to transcend, whether it's a traditional Native perspective, whether it's Christian perspective, Buddhist, atheist? And when we were writing the chapter in our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, that dealt with that spiritual dimension, we looked at a number of virtues. The first one was humility. It seems that that's one of the critical ones. And we were just really interested as we looked at this because... Many people are familiar with uh, the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts with this blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we start to think about that, this value of humility. I know you've been looking from a little bit different perspective at some of these same virtues and seeing how they fit into this whole fabric of trust, this whole uh, fabric of building community. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, of course. When we 
are working to get a team together to function. One of the greatest aspects of that is humility. We like to follow a leader who is, or a team member who is humble. And so when we talk about humility, and of course we go through the the leadership style of Christ, we talk about those levels, but humility was one of the things that he talked about and lived. And so we have activities on humility. For instance, um, if I was going to write a bio for myself, bios to me are always kind of brag. But through this exercise, they would now learn in an interview with another person how they grew up, and they would then share with the group through a bio that would just give you a nice level of humility of this person. Hmm. Not brag them up a whole lot, but tell some of the positive virtues that this person has. And as they start to understand that person, they start to feel much closer connection with them. And they build their trust. I really like this because we're talking about introductions, bios, and typically it's this person accomplished this, they've done this, they have this degree. And often that can be distancing, can't it? Very much. So if you focus on character qualities, is that what I hear you saying? Yes, exactly. You know, that this person, when he was in college, worked in this project that helped some of the poor community around or things like that. You're catching the idea. I like that. I've never heard this before. Is, is this something that you came up with or is this well known in these uh, team building circles? Humility is, but the idea, not not the way it's presented and done in an experiential way. That is kind of something that I worked on through the many years of teaching. I'm like, well, how can I do this effectively and keep that level of humility there? That's great. I'm trying to translate this. There's folks listening, maybe on a tribal council. Maybe there's something happening in, uh, in an indigenous community where they're, they're trying to build maybe a focus group, or maybe they're even partnering with a university for community-based uh, participatory research where the community is giving guidance on the needs that they have. And so people are getting to know each other. And uh, typically, we have these distancing ways of getting to know each other. But I really like this approach. And someone who's listening may say, well, when we're pulling together this group in our community, this is something that we could do. It's something that puts people all at an equal level, right? It is. And one of the things we found worked exceptionally well is to get in a group, say, say that you have 30 people in the group or even 20 would put them in groups or pods of about four and draw a house plan of where you grew up and share a story of that house, just a personal story of that house, and do that in the group, and then someone in that group shares that story with somebody else. That isn't typically a story from where you grew up. Is not necessarily a prideful story. It's mm-hmm. usually like, hey, this is where my mom made my best birthday cake. Uh huh. It's that type of thing, or this is where a funny thing happened on my yard at home. And they now are living within that person's house for a moment, visually, also auditorily. Well, I love these ideas for connecting. You know, so many times I've been in these settings where they're, you know, doing these icebreaker activities or trying to help people mingle, and they're often pretty artificial uh, in some settings. But uh, I really like this practical emphasis. So you're trying to emphasize certain 
values, certain virtues that help build teams. Humility is one of them. Yes. Are there other things that you're trying to build in these groups? Uh, gratefulness or thankfulness. Hmm. Uh, we find that people that are thankful live longer. Mm-hmm. So if you can share something within, we do activities that are sharing. In other words, for them to do well at this activity, the only way they can do it is to share something. And so that activity would involve sharing so that that other group could win. If you mm. want to call it win or succeed would probably be a better way to say it. And I'm not, I hate to use the word success because that doesn't mean a whole lot compared to maybe succeeding and finishing and getting to the next point. I'm trying to conceptualize this last area that you're talking about. So what is the goal when we're talking about Thanksgiving? I mean, I would think that just giving thanks would be sufficient, but there's some type of sharing with others besides just communicating the Thanksgiving that someone has to say, well, Paul told me he was thankful that uh, his father, when he was 12 years old, bought him a new bicycle, and then I'm sharing that with another group on your behalf. It could be sharing that with another group, uh-huh. but even even just sharing what you are particularly thankful for. This could be from person. It could be from God. It could be a spiritual thing. And give an experience of that. But in the activities, it would be something that the only way you could actually benefit from this and remember who I am and who the others are is because this person shared this with me. It's not only a story. Maybe uh, you you can take this to the point of sharing a kidney. Hmm. You can take this to the point of, of sharing just here's some money. Take it. Have a meal. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is. Not that they're asking for it. You're just openly sharing this and you're thankful. There's benevolence within this. It builds positivity. Okay, so we've got humility, thankfulness. I know I've looked at multiple studies that are talking about the benefits of gratitude. There's this whole you know, positive psychology movement that's talking about gratitude journals. So you're kind of building on that in a public way where we're giving expression for thanks. What other kind of factors seem to be critical if we're going to build a strong group in a community? And related very much to that, of course, to the gratefulness, benevolence is service. Mm. Uh, Robert Greenleaf he wrote the original book on servant leadership. Mm. And if you, you ever get a chance to look at that, he mentions Christ as one of the people who was probably the ultimate servant leader. And so if you can serve somebody else, an example of this if we take that to the Christian perspective, is even washing somebody else's feet. Hmm. But if you take that to another perspective, and it works, if somebody is hurting or injured, if you treat them or help them, immediately they see that as a service benefit to them, Hmm. and they're happy to actually trust you more. So some folks are listening to what we're talking about here. They obviously are not going to be able to take advantage of your seminar in this venue. It's a pre-recorded show, so this will be airing long after this event. But they've heard about your role as coordinator for Collegiate Advocates for Better Living. Maybe it's a college student. Maybe it's a an elder who has a child or a, a grandchild that's in a, a university setting. Would this be something that anyone would be welcome to reach out to and explore? Yes, we are doing workshops. We are, have 
one coming up in South Dakota. We have another one coming up in Georgia. And so, and we've done a bunch of these. So we do the workshops or we can give them information. They can develop it on their own if they want, but it can get fairly in-depth until you've experienced it. Once you've experienced it, you'll probably change it and run with it, and that's perfect. So how does someone get a hold of you or, or the organization? Yeah, just email me at uh, P. Lehman, so P-L-E-H-M-A-N-N at Berman U, that's B-U-R-M-A-N-U dot C-A. Okay, let me make sure I've got this right. So I've got P for Paul, Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N-N. That's correct. At Berman, B-U-R-M-A-N, just one N. Yeah, one N, U. Okay, U for university, bermanu.ca. That's correct. Okay, we got it. We got to step away, Paul. We're going to be back with more from the venue of Lexington, Kentucky, more life-changing insights. Don't miss it. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be right back. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Paul Lehman is staying by with me. We're speaking about really team-building skills. Uh, These are things that apply whether you're in the workplace, uh, things that can make a difference in your home, uh, in your tribal council meetings, in any setting in which you find yourself. We're speaking about how we can have cohesive groups of people, especially if we're bringing new people into a, a setting. Paul is doing that in in real life and in many venues, and uh, he's representing an organization called Collegiate Advocates for Better Living. Paul, we've been speaking about some of these key aspects that you try to help groups connect with and implement. We spoke about some of these virtues, humility, benevolence, uh, thanksgiving. What other important things are you trying to help people be cognizant of as you're trying to get them to work together to better their community, to better their college campus, whatever the venue might be? So one of the things that I've kind of developed over time is to try to figure out, we call it an opportunity spectrum analysis. And in an opportunity spectrum analysis, we want to find out where individuals are actually are they capable, incapable, willing or unwilling? Hmm. So you will get a person who is totally capable but unwilling to do something. So mm. we try to determine why are they unwilling but they're capable. Mm-hmm. Or if they are willing but incapable, then we have to figure out how we can bring the balance to that. And that is just kind of a fun activity, but it leads to something very critical within the group because if I am a person who is totally capable of doing something but I'm unwilling, why am I unwilling to do this? And this kind of goes into the next spectrum of this is the three levels of uh, working with our comfort zones. Okay, so I want to make sure we've got this first concept. I think conceptually all of us can say, okay, we got this. You know, you can be capable and willing. Then you can, you know, get stuff done. You can be uh, uh, capable but unwilling. That's going to be a problem. Willing but incapable. You know, you've got to address those issues. So how do you do this practically? It's not just theoretical. So how are you getting people to find out where folks are on this opportunity spectrum? So I built a scale that goes from 1 to 10 on the willing scale. Mm-hmm. And it goes 1 to 10 on the capable, incapable. And so they will draw lines going from that 1 to 10. Say it's a 5 and a 5, okay. Then they will kind of total that up, and at the end you might have 30 in the capable, 30 in the willing. Mm-hmm. But as I've done this, I've also found out that there were people who were 60 in the willing, and just about that 60 in the capable. Okay, those can be very key people to me. But I've also found the people who are at like a, they just, everything is a one and a one Hmm. because they're not willing, they're not capable. Wow. And then I start to think, well, is this just a problem with their own self-image? Uh-huh. And can we get through that self-image to help them get through that and give them the skills and the ability to do something within that team? 
So let me ask this question then. Is it possible as you're doing some of these initial exercises that you might at some point pull someone aside and say, you know, I, I don't think you're really a good fit for this group and it's going to be frustrating for you and frustrating for the group or is that never an outcome? It is possibly an outcome. But typically, if the team has the strength and gone through the trust factors, they will usually find a place for that person within that. Hmm. And if not, they will say, well, tell us what you think that you are good at. Now, the other thing that I found out with virtually all of the students that I work with, and Christ did this no differently, he put them into an environment that was on the edge Hmm. of Panic and comfort. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so once you're into that position, then you find out that if you can give them the tools and the credibility to carry out that next task, if if we look from the biblical perspective, and that's where I approach some of this from, and it's pretty simple. If you look at the woman at the well, when Christ came to her, The first thing he had her in that green zone of comfort. The next zone is the yellow zone, which is the learning zone. That's where learning happens. And the third zone is the red zone, which is the panic zone. Okay. He had her very much in that first zone. She was comfortable. I'm at the well. Yes, I have a Jew asking a Samaritan. Totally different tribes, right? Uh Uh-huh. And now we are saying, could you get me some water? So he asked for something Mm -hmm. that's a good approach to people ask them for something because they're usually willing to help but he moved very quickly to the very far edge of that yellow zone or the learning zone Mm -hmm. yes you're right you have more than one husband but he put her into the panic zone and we say well in the panic zone learning doesn't happen Hmm. but he had taken her through that other zone and then he brought her back and she was willing to go into the pan can you imagine a prostitute going to her town and saying come back i have all the answers for you how many people are going to listen to her Hmm. that would be panic for me Mm -hmm. that would be totally panic for me to go even into another neighborhood in a city where i'm not acquainted but he gave her the tools to do that within a very short frame of time So although this is a familiar story to many people who might be familiar with the stories of Jesus in the Bible, if we were to translate that into a story that's more contemporary, can you give me a feel for like working with a real student or a community group? How does this work in real life? I can give you probably an example of that that happened to us in inner city Toronto, where we were... We went into the inner city to set up low-challenge courses for a very difficult community. Gang members were in that community. And we were told by the police when we went into there that if you are here after sundown, we are not coming in to help you. Hmm. And so we started setting this up, low-challenge stuff, just cables, ropes, wires, Mm -hmm. activities. And within a very short time, the children came out. They were gang members out. And uh, they asked us what we're doing. We said, we're doing this for the community. Now, the individuals that I was training were totally into a panic zone. Hmm. They did not know that. My son and I were on the verge of the panic zone because (laughs) we had not been in that environment for a while. Uh Once we set that up and the community said, you're okay, we accept you, 
you can come in here at any time of day and we will protect you. Hmm. Then we knew that we had bridged that learning zone and the panic zone had basically disappeared. And we, Our goal is to enlarge that learning zone, hmm. not just keep it into that small triangle, but enlarge that learning zone so that the panic zone basically disappears. You as a physician can understand that when you are focused, saying, doing surgery, it is very much into that learning zone. But if you all of a sudden find something in there that is a total surprise to you and say, I've never dealt with this before, you're on the verge of the panic zone, but what do you reflect on? The things that you've had success with before. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that comfort zone is enlarged and you say, I can do this again and maybe better. And so basically the very things that challenged you, that pushed you maybe to the edge of that level of comfort or learning zone or however you want to describe it, um, are actually the things that are helping to build capacity, helping us to be more successfully addressing challenges in the future. Am I hearing that right? They are. And therefore, now you have, if we go back to this opportunity spectrum analysis, when the next opportunity comes up, we are not only willing, but now we're capable. Hmm. And that is the goal of what we're trying to achieve, that people have that comfort zone and say, yeah, hey, sign me up. I can do this. I can help people with it. And one of the mental health things we do is help them unravel what's going on in their head mm -hmm. and give them the tools and the connection with the people to correct those problems mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. permanently, not just walk away from them, say, okay, you're on your own now. So if I'm hearing you right, if I'm in a situation in a community, a workplace, can be tribal, can be not a single indigenous person in the group, we're actually saying we're trying to build a stronger team. Maybe it's a workplace. People have been working together for 10 years. Can you bring these principles in and, and strengthen cohesion and strengthen the productivity of the workforce? The studies that have been done increase the workforce with positive team building by at least 30%. Hmm. So, uh, doing that, and I have done this in indigenous communities, where individuals said, hey, I've never done anything like this before. You bought me 20, 25, 40 days out of jail hmm. just because I've learned these principles. I want that to go beyond those 45 days out of jail or whatever the situation is. And, and even when you have gang members now saying, well, I can beat that gang member at this, and I can beat that gang. Well, all of a sudden, they're looking at each other and saying, we're not killing each other. We're competing on a wire. Uh huh. And maybe they'll communicate. I'm not there to deal <laughs> with the, the whole gang issue, but right, uh, right. there was team within that community, at least for that while. So you've talked about this framework for building trust for uh, assessing where people are at and then for giving them opportunities to address maybe some of the areas where they're deficient. Is that pretty much the big picture that you'll be communicating in the seminar? Or are there some other pieces that we're missing? I think the other piece that I like to stress is that they learn who in that group they can rely on. Hmm. You don't necessarily need a leader, but a leader emerges and so with the sociogram, we figure out who is talking to each other and who's not talking to each mm -hmm. other. And we try to get that team so that 
if I'm in trouble now, I know who I can get. Right, right. I know who I can talk to. And th these friendships have led to marriages hmm. that have been successful. Okay, fair enough. And just good friendships. Well, this is amazing because, you know, today I think more than ever, it's so easy for people to let differences uh, interject into their social relationships. It's so easy for people if they feel they're not from the same background to not collaborate, but you're really trying to build this collaboration across community lines, across racial and ethnic lines. I really appreciate what you're doing. One more time, if someone says, I want to connect with you and with the work that you're doing, how do they do that? Probably the best way is email to P. Lehman, P-L-E-H-M-A-N-N -N, at BermanU.ca. So that's B-U-R. M-A-N-U dot C-A. Okay. So if you can remember Paul Lehman's name, first initial is P, last name Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N-N, at Berman, B-U-R-M-A-N-U dot C-A for Canada, you'll be able to reach out to him. Paul, thank you so very much for what you've been sharing. We do have a final segment we're going to surprise our listeners at what we've got in store. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. More from Lexington, Kentucky, right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I promised you a very special segment as we conclude. You've had the privilege of getting to know Paul Lehman. Well, across from me now is Donna Lee Lehman, Paul's wife. You are also a retired professor, university professor. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, my background is that I... I took occupational therapy as my undergrad. Then I did a master's in public health. Then I stayed home and had my family. Okay. That was my favorite career. Just so everybody knows, my favorite career was raising my three children. And that was that was cool. Then I happened to be at the right place at the right time. The university needed some extra classes being taught, such as stress and leisure, Mm. uh, such as uh, hydrotherapy, uh, introductory leadership, uh, basic camping skills. So I had quite a wide variety of classes to teach and fun classes, very fun classes. What's especially exciting to me is you taught this class on hydrotherapy. And one of the things I've noticed for people that are rubbing shoulders with us from uh, indigenous populations is they have this strong ethic connecting with nature. Hydrotherapy is something that uh, has been present in many tribal communities that, that I've had the privilege of learning about. And you told me as we were talking about doing this segment that hydrotherapy, these water treatments, was something that got the interest of students as well. Tell us a little bit how popular that was. Well, because it takes quite a bit of equipment, I had to limit my class to 20 people. And every year, I taught this class for, tw- for 17 years, and every year there was a waiting list of students to get in the class. And I always told the students, you might get in, but don't be surprised you won't get in. And I think out of all those 17 years, there was only one student that had to change out of that program and somebody else could come in. So that was pretty cool. So I had students that were uh, interested in being a pastor that wanted to take the class because they wanted to use it in their church, in their health. They were interested in health ministry. I had uh, students that were in the biology program that wanted to take it because they wanted to do preventive medicine when they went to Loma Linda or whichever medical school they went to. I had people that were nursing wanted to be nursing students. So I had a very wide variety of students, which made it more exciting because, you know, if you have all kinds of different types of people coming into your program, they have all different kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. Now, I have you on this show because hydrotherapy is something that I know is of interest to many people. It's a simple, natural remedy. You've taught it for many years. You're going to be doing a seminar here at this venue in Lexington, Kentucky, teaching people hydrotherapy skills. I know it's a hands-on discipline, but we want to try to give people a flavor uh, over the radio. We're in a busy exhibit hall, so I mean, people may feel there's a little bit of distraction, but that's just the ambiance of being in a setting like this. So tell us, Donna Lee, about what kind of practical things people can do with water that can make a difference as far as their health. Okay, so some of the, I'll just tell some of the things I'm doing tomorrow, and then maybe I can describe a little bit of sure. it. Then people could actually try this at home. So one of the things that we'll be doing is called uh, steam inhalation. Hmm. So what they would want to do is have a electric hot water kettle, okay, and then you put, make sure it has the right amount of water in. Then what I do for ease is I just take a large poster board, mm-hmm. make it into a cone, just tape it. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, the electric kettles have automatic shutoffs. Okay. okay? 
So if you keep the lid open, it doesn't shut off. Hmm. So you make your cone so that the small part goes on top of whatever size of opening you have for uh-huh. your electric kettle. Then the wide part comes to your face. You put a I often tell people if it's a lady, she might want to put a shower cap on or something. Uh But you could put then a towel over your head and you lean over as close as comfortable and make sure that it's... Because you'll know if you're too close because you start coughing because the steam is too hot for Uh you. Okay, Uh So you lean over and breathe in, open your mouth, just breathe normally. Every once in a while, take a deep breath to get it down into your lungs and get that moisture into your into your lungs and your nostrils. Mm-hmm. In Alberta, where we live, it's very dry in the right, winter. Right. So I would have students coming and saying, I get these nosebleeds every morning. I said, well, there's two things. Do steam inhalation in mm. the evening or get a humidifier for your room, mm-hmm. maybe both. Mm-hmm. So that will help with that. If, in fact, you are feeling like you're getting a cold or just everything's kind of dry or if you need to relax to go to sleep, huh. You take this little treatment at night. You can go from 15 to 20 minutes, 5 minutes, doesn't uh-huh. matter. And then just wipe off your face and it relaxes you. I was surprised in class after students would do this, how relaxed they looked. Interesting. And I was like, you'd like to lay down and have a nap now, wouldn't you? Uh-huh. And they said, yes, would I ever, did that ever feel good? So just a simple thing like steam. Uh-huh. So in the workshop, we're going to be using all aspects of water. So we're using steam, uh-huh. water, right. ice. So one of the things we're going to do is an ice massage. Okay. Ice massage. Now, yeah. some folks have heard of this before, but for a lot of folks, they're thinking, ice massage? How do you do that? So what we're doing, I have the hotel here, actually. They took my styrofoam cups. They're mm-hmm. putting about three-quarter of water in, putting it in their freezer. They'll bring it to me tomorrow. We get the styrofoam off. You take a uh, washcloth so you can hold on to the ice as the person that's giving the massage. Uh-huh. So let's say they have a sore neck or sore shoulder in uh-huh. this area. And so you have one towel that's dry and then you're hanging on to the ice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you take motions just along that muscle. You're going to make sure to not be on a bony prominence too much because you don't want to freeze the bone, right? So you're rubbing the ice at first, it actually melts really fast Uh because your skin is warm. Right. So you melt and tap, Uh just pat dry, and then put the ice, pat dry, put the ice, pat dry. Do that actually for about 15 or 20 minutes. Hmm. That muscle actually becomes, it's a natural anesthetic, so to speak. Right, right. Because it gets so, you can't feel it actually. Uh Uh-huh. Then... If you leave it at that, that's one thing. The most important point, most important point is to do exercise while that muscle is asleep, so to speak, mm. or you can't feel it. So you're doing your little bit of uh, resistance type of exercises mm-hmm. with a stretchy bungee cord thing or against the wall. And then when that starts warming up, it doesn't hurt as much because you're able to exercise without it hurting in the first place. Now, a lot of folks might be wondering about your credibility to do this, but you're an (laughs) occupational therapist. Correct. And uh, if people don't know that discipline, usually in many hospitals, if people have leg problems, they've got the physical therapist working, but those practical arm-related things, they're they're calling the occupational therapist. Is that the realm of specialization in Canada as well? Correct. Correct. So you definitely know what you're talking about when you're talking about functional activities with the arms. And this was something that you would use in your occupational therapy practice years ago? 
Uh, not as much because I was in the psychiatric field. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much in the uh, rehab area. Okay. So, so you're teaching people about steam inhalation, ice. What other modalities are you teaching folks? Well, actually, this will be a fun one, I think, for people to try. It's called the salt glow. The salt glow. Okay, yes. tell us about how that works. So this is a really fun one. And it's actually extremely, I'll remind me to tell you at the end. So you take just regular old table salt, uh-huh. cheapest you can find, and put half the container, depending if you're going to do the whole thing on your body, uh-huh. you take half the container, put it in a bowl, and put just a few drops of water in. Just a few drops. few drops. And you mix it up with your hands. Uh-huh. Oh, it's still kind of dry. Uh-huh. A few more drops. Mix it up with your hands. You want it sort of the consistency of snow. So if people don't know that consistency, oh, okay. that might be a trouble. But the problem is you put too much water, it becomes sloppy. Yeah, you don't yeah, want yeah. it sloppy. Uh-huh. Okay? So you then take that salty stuff. You get in your stand in your bathtub or shower with no water in there mm-hmm. and have some water beside. So you start with your legs. You wet your hands a little bit, wet the legs a little bit, and rub really nice and briskly okay. on one leg, then go uh-huh. on the other leg, then go on the arm, the other arm. So you're doing this treatment back. all on yourself. You can do it yourself. Okay. It's nicer if somebody does it okay, for fair you. Enough, fair okay. Enough. And you can put your bathing suit on. That's what I would do at school. The uh-huh. students would have their bathing suits on, and we'd go to the showers at the gymnasium. And uh, then the front, the stomach, not usually the face because it's pretty abrasive, mm-hmm, unless mm-hmm. you want a facial, but don't do that very often. Okay. Okay. Um, so the nice thing about this is it's a really good stress reliever. Mm. Okay. So if you're just really stressed, do this. It's a good thing after a surgery because it starts your digestive process. You, you'll get hungry. Mm. I tell my students, okay, when we do this, you know, we do it during class, mm-hmm. you're going to be really hungry after this. And they're Interesting. like, wow, this is really, but for women, if they can do this and especially, uh, pay attention to their abdomen area. Mm-hmm. It helps with their cramps. Wow. I know you could speak for a, <laughs> for a whole show. I'm glad we were able to squeeze you in. I'm excited. Yeah. Paul was very uh, gracious to uh, allow me to, to pull you in, and uh, and you were gracious to come. Well, thank you. Donnelly, thank you so much for helping to open up our minds when it comes to hydrotherapy. I'm going to give one more time the contact information for your husband. I know you guys work in kind of different sectors, but if you've engaged with the program today and you want to connect with the Collegiate Advocates for Better Living, Paul Lehman, P. Lehman, P-L-E-H-M-A-N-N, at Berman, B-U-R-M-A-N-U, dot E-D-U. And if you really want to get a hold of his wife, I bet he could find some way to connect with her as well. (laughs) We're a team. Thank you so much, Donnelly. Thank you. And thank you to each one of you who've joined us for today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.